You're listening to TIP. Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. My guest today is my friend and fellow host on the Investors Podcast Network, Trey Lockerbie. Trey is a former professional musician who has toured around the world. He's also the CEO and co-founder, along with his wife, of the beverage company Better Booch, which makes kombucha tea, and he's an avid value investor. We focused this episode on how Trey got into value investing, how he met Warren Buffett, what he learned from that interaction, and the value investing principles he's taken from Warren and incorporated into his own investment approach. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Trey as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Trey Lockerbie. You're listening to The Good Life by the Investors Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and values that help you live a meaningful, purposeful life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Trey, welcome to The Good Life. Thanks for having me, Sean. Well, it's great to have you here. And I should mention right up front that this is a big week for you. You are the new co-host, along with Stig Broderson and Preston Pish, of one of the most popular investment shows on the planet, We Study Billionaires. It's a show that's produced right here on the Investors Podcast Network, and it has over a million downloads per month. So that's pretty exciting. Congratulations. I wanted to invite you to join me here on The Good Life to talk about one of your favorite subjects, Warren Buffett. I hope today we can go through Warren's life and pull out some lessons, both to help us become better investors and just help us live the good life. And I think Warren has so many great examples in both of those areas. I understand that you've had the opportunity to meet Warren Buffett, which is something that a lot of us value investors and Buffettologists really haven't had the opportunity to do. So I was hoping we could start there. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to meet Buffett and what that meeting was like. Absolutely. Yeah, it was certainly a life-changing event for me. And I think I looked it up right before we met. He auctions off dinners every year for charity. And I think the year I met him, the dinner rate you know, was going for somewhere around $3 million for a sit-down dinner with him. So you know, it was not lost on me that this was a very valuable experience. But to be honest, at the time, I was a pretty avid options trader. That was how I first forayed into sort of finance. I was a touring musician and I was just looking for ways to make more money while I was on the road. There's a lot of downtime on the road, a lot of times just being on a bus or a train. And uh, the stock market was always there, it was always available, something I was hearing about constantly. And so that's what really piqued my interest was how can I kind of grow my money while I'm sitting around traveling? So I have a family member that knew I had really gotten into investing, but really trading actually at the time. And she must have known it would have a huge impact on me because she is very close with Warren. And he was actually coming over to have dinner. It was right around Thanksgiving. And he was flying up. He had just released this new book. I believe it was Tap Dancing to Work. And he was kind of doing a book promo tour of sorts. And he was flying up into the New York area to launch this book. And they had planned to have dinner at her house. And so once I kind of got wind about this, I like to think that she invited me. I might have invited myself, but I definitely got on a plane and headed out east from LA. It was very interesting from the get-go because as soon as I arrived there, everyone who was there for the dinner was anxiously awaiting his arrival. 
we got word that he was somewhat stuck in Omaha. There was some kind of storm that was sort of keeping him grounded. I remember someone asking, well, what airline is he flying? And my cousin said, well, he's flying NetJets, but he owns NetJets. So I'm sure he'll work something out. (laughs) I just love that quote. And sure enough, I think they told the tower they were taking off to a different city and then they changed course in the air. But whatever, however he did it, he arrived you know, right on time. But there was a panic for a minute that he wouldn't show. And even with all of that, one thing that left a big impression on me was my cousin has four kids, all of kind of different ages. When he arrived, it was just him and his assistant. And he arrived with almost like FAO short size teddy bears in both arms. You know, He just had these massive like stuffed animal. He walked in very much like Santa Claus and just very joyous. And then immediately within minutes, he was on his hands and knees talking and playing with these kids. I mean, just instantly, 80-something-year-old man just like instantly plopped down, being really warm and interactive with these small kids. That just left a really huge impression on me. It's not quite what I expected his entrance to be like. And so another thing that really stuck with me was that my cousin had ordered really nice Italian food that evening. But if you know Warren, he's got a very particular diet. So she ordered a hamburger just for him because that's all he eats. <laughs> Everyone else had this really lovely Italian dinner. He had his hamburger and Coca-Cola and I think Oreos you know, at the end. So far, I'm just loving this story because he has such a joy for life that he's not above getting down on his hands and knees and playing with not his grandkids, but what would be the equivalent of his grandkids or his great grandkids at that age. You know, someone with his net worth and kind of his gravitas may not be willing to do that. You know, some other people in that category, but Warren, no, he just jumps right in and does it. And then of course the dietary stuff, which I've been reading about for years that he will suck down a Coke and loves hamburgers and yet he's still going strong at 90. So that's great. So keep going. Tell us more about what the meeting was like. Another big takeaway I had from just sitting down at dinner with him was getting a glimpse of how his mind works. Almost every sentence he started, it included a date. So he'd be like, oh yeah, back September 31st, 1982, I was doing blah, blah, blah. Like Everything had like a date associated with it, which is fascinating because obviously he's really well known to be very numbers oriented and basically does intrinsic values off in his own head. But that would just showed the intelligence level and just sort of the photographic memory that he has. He talked a lot about sports. He loves baseball. There's a lot of baseball analogies. And we tried to keep it very non-business oriented. And I was very shy. You know, I was sitting there, the youngest person at the table. At this time, I had started my tea business. You know, it gotten kind of off the road of touring and I've been doing a lot of trading. And I had a lot of questions. I was trying to distill down though exactly what I would ask him if I only got one question because I really wanted to keep it very, you know, non-businessy for lack of a better term. But luckily, my cousin, I don't even know if I would have asked the question, but she was like, hey, Trey has questions for you. <laughs> you know, she just kind of said like, go. And then he was like, yeah, go ahead. Ask me anything. I go back and forth. Uh, when I look back on my question, I, I, was, I don't really have any regrets about the question. But you know, looking back, I'm not sure if I would ask the same question. But back then, being more of an options trader, I was really following more of the efficient market hypothesis model, right? And it really made logical sense to me that in this day and age where we have the internet, we have all this distributed, disseminated information within microseconds and all this liquidity in the market that 
the market would be pretty efficient, you know, and maybe it wasn't back in the 60s and so when he was starting out and doing value investing, but has anything changed? So I, I basically said, I don't know exactly how I framed it, but it was something to the effect of, you know, I, I realize you're a value based investor, but, you know, looking at the technology we have today, right, and the, and the internet, has anything in those books that we've read, you know, intelligent investor securities analysis, you know, have you seen anything fundamentally change with that because of this new technology and it's just kind of getting better every year? And I, I'll never forget the look on his face when I asked him that. He made this face a few times. It was as sort of Santa Clausy and bright, you know, warm as his demeanor was. He would sometimes make this sort of Cheshire cat grin that just, I don't know, I felt like I glimpsed the hardcore businessman in him or something like that. I just, you know, like, he would just make this smirk that just seemed like, oh, you know, he's, I don't know. Yeah, I can't really describe it, but it was very much a Cheshire cat grin. Like he knows so much more than you. <laughs> and, you know, and like almost had pity on you kind of thing. And he probably did. I will say though, at the time, I was more focused on a certain woman who I was studying who had turned $100,000 into $100 million by options trading. And so I was basically following her methodology. And I told him as much. I was kind of went into detail about her strategy. And he was just like, oh, wow, you are really far down the rabbit hole. <laughs> he kind of like smirked. And he said, have you read this book? And I had brought my copy of Intelligent Investor with me to have him sign it because I know it's his, one of his favorite books. So I had it with me in my hand. you know. And, and he was like, have you actually read that book? I was like, it's very dry. You know, It was really hard to read for me. But I get it. I just, it's written so long ago. That was my kind of problem with it is like, does this still apply? And he basically said, go back and read chapters eight and 13. You know, and those chapters are all about psychology, which I think is you know, something you touch on a lot on your show. And, it, and it's so clear that psychology plays almost more of a role than anything else when it comes to investing. And he basically said to me, if markets were efficient, I wouldn't be here. And he basically clarified by saying, I think that markets are usually efficient, you know, but it, there are periods of time where the inefficiencies come in, out to play and it's all usually psychologically driven. He also gave me the name of another book. He was a big Adam Smith fan. So I don't know if you see behind me, there's a book called The Money Game and then another book called Super Money. He recommended both of those books to me to go read, which I immediately did. And, you know, from those books, just the weight, I kind of wrap my head more around the inefficiency factor with the market. Funny enough, not that long after, that smirk just kind of stayed with me, right? Telling him, hey, this lady turned 100,000 into 100 million and his smirk at that. And I went back and just did the math because we had about a three hour dinner. Roughly, Berkshire made 100 million in that three hours, right? So his, his company generated basically 100 million during the time of that dinner. And so that's when it really stuck for me. I was like, you know, this is just such an order of magnitude difference in approach, but also in result. You just can't argue with that. So from then on, I immediately pivoted. I, I was a value investor from then on. I went and read every book I could on Warren Buffett, all the biographies I could, and any other book and article I could read really became a true Buffettologist. And I've actually been able to go out to Omaha now a couple of times and Going back to that hamburger, it's funny, but I, I've sat in on his 6 a.m. CNBC interviews the day after his meeting. Again, at 6 a.m., they gave him a bowl of Oreos and a Coca Cola, and that was his breakfast. And I just, <laughs> I mean, it's really amazing. That just continues to amaze me. 
that just amazes me because he's still going strong at 90 with that diet. Still going strong. I was able to tell him about my kombucha tea business at the time too. He was interested in that. He never heard of kombucha. And he said, well, call me when it starts competing with Coca-Cola. I want to make that call. That's my mission. I love so much about that story, Trey. That's fantastic. And you know, here you are, a youngster coming into the meeting with a different kind of approach to investing than the traditional value investing, which I would put, I don't know a lot about it, but it sounds like I would put it more in the, hey, we can take on a little bit more risk or maybe a lot more risk and make more money in the short term, get rich a little faster. And that's something I can relate to. It's something that an approach that I believed in earlier too, in the dot-com days, the first dot-com bubble and investing in internet stocks and things like that. And as a young person, I think we get impatient. We want to build wealth, but we want to build wealth now. And here was Buffett sounds like saying, well, have you thought about this other approach? Almost like in his smile, he was saying, okay, he's probably seen this before. And of course, brings out the intelligent investor, focuses on eight and 13. Chapters eight and chapter 13 of the intelligent investor, if you listen to Buffett, he almost always references those chapters. He does admit that the other chapters are somewhat out of date. It's not that the information in there isn't still valid. It's just all the examples are older companies. Sometimes things aren't even reported in the same way that they were then. And it's very dry. But eight and 13 are exactly right. They're about psychology and human psychology doesn't change. The technology, like your very first question, are things still efficient with technology changing? Well, yeah, technology changes. The world changes. It's so different now than when he was born in 1930. But what hasn't changed is the idea that psychology and temperament and patience and thinking about the market, owning stock as owning a company and not just a ticker symbol, that stuff doesn't change. What great wisdom. And it, it got you turned around and coming back to uh, value investing, which I think was a good move on your part. So that's just wonderful. Thanks for relating the story. Let's talk a little bit about what you learned in going deeper into Buffett's life. After meeting him in person, sounds like you went and read, I'm guessing, Lowenstein's biography and probably the snowball as well. Let's start with his childhood. What, what do you take away from his early years? Well, the first thing I realized is that I, I related so much to his childhood because he was such an enterprising kid and teenager. And he owned, I think it was gumball machines, you know, when he was in high school and vending machines. And this is stuff that, you know, he had a newspaper route, et cetera. These are all things that I had as a kid as well. And I remember like even setting up a little table outside of my house, selling all my used toys. You know, I just was that kind of kid, like would just be out there trying to make a buck. And I really related with that. I loved that. Through all the biographies, one of the main things I took away from reading deeper into Buffett was just how principled he is. He's probably one of the most principled businessmen on earth and also one of the most rational, I would argue, as well. A couple of pillars you could say that stuck out to me in his character were basically this level of trust he had and also this level of fairness. You know, if you read up on the Buffett partnerships he started, I think it was in the late 50s, there wasn't even really a management fee. I mean, he made sure that the participants in the partnership got value. They got their yield. And then he would start collecting beyond that. That was unheard of back then. And it's still unheard of today. And it's one of the biggest things that I 
sunk my teeth into because I learned that you can align yourselves with your partners in business and create win-win situations. And I think that also boiled down to his own belief in his own skill set. He was very confident in his skill set. That is a really important aspect of Buffett. And the story that you relate there about his management fee tells a lot about who he is and Mm -hmm. what he's all about. Most investment managers, and you look at private equity, they charge this, what they call two and 20, 2% on the assets that they're managing, and then they take 20% of the profit. Well, Buffett did not charge a 2% management fee. He only made money when his investors made money. And he invested alongside of his investors. And the other thing that he did at that time around this idea of fairness and aligning his interests with his investors, which I'd love to get your thoughts on, was he got very good at writing about investing and sharing his perspective on how to invest. And I think that helped him become a better investor. And it also helped align his interests with his shareholders because he was sort of teaching his shareholders, hey, this is how I think about investing. This is how I work. And by the way, the kind of the unwritten message there was if you don't like it, you can take your money elsewhere. And he ended up having a shareholder base that was the kind of shareholder base that he wanted. And I think you see that today in Berkshire. Absolutely. That's why you see this cult-like following almost at his meetings. There's 40,000 people there and they, they wear the Berkshire badge. like It's a part of this club that you're in because you get it. Everyone understands that level of transparency is very rare in finance and even to this day. And I think it's something that adds a huge competitive advantage to him as a manager and him as a company leader. What else did you take away from studying Buffett? One thing that stuck out to me over the years, more longer term, is that he's a voracious reader, but also you know, a continuous learner. He's able to change his mind when the facts change. And I, I found that to be incredibly advantageous as well for him. So you know, for example, when he started out with Benjamin Graham, working under him after his study at Columbia, you know, he had that cigar butt approach, right? Where he was basically trying to find net nets that, you know, you could sell off all the assets and make more cash than the company was currently worth. And found that to be a means to an end and was able to, you know, was actually doing quite well with that approach. But even then was able to shift his perspective and buy more wonderful companies at a fair price than fair companies at a wonderful price, which is you know something he likes to say. And a lot of that he attributes to his partner, Charlie Munger. But in reality, you have to give him credit for being so open-minded that he, even being a successful stock picker, was able to shift his approach midstream, basically. Yeah, that is a great quality and an admirable quality and something that's really served Buffett well through the years that if you look at his mentor, Benjamin Graham, who, as you mentioned, used this cigar butt strategy, which, by the way, cigar butt comes from this idea that when you find a cigar butt on the ground, that's just for free. You can sometimes you know, just light it up and get a couple puffs and didn't cost you anything and you got a couple puffs. That's sort of what Graham's investment style, the net-net style, was all about. And Buffett comes along and at a certain point... And maybe it is the influence of Munger. I think he partly does attribute Munger to expanding his horizons in this way, but he starts to look at companies that aren't just net net. One example that stuck out for me was Disney, because he ended up buying Disney in the 60s. 
when you looked at the balance sheet of Disney at the time, it wasn't a net net, but it had the backlog of film. You know, the movies of Bambi and these other just incredible animation films that were woven into people's memories and childhood and whatnot. Buffett thought, well, there's a an asset. It's intangible. It's not on the balance sheet, but it is formidable. You know, the other thing he would say is, would I want to compete against Disney? Would I want to compete against Coca-Cola? You get this sense of the value of the moat or the brand. And he started to incorporate this. And it's not a trivial thing that he was able to grow into that thinking, right? Evolve into that thinking. That's something that we can all learn from. I think value investors right now are kind of struggling. Like, do I need to evolve, right? Because value has had a tough string. Do I need to evolve and think about, you know, evolve my own strategy? And if only he didn't sell his Disney position, right? I mean, I think he bought it, his position for about 2 million and sold it for 4 million, but it would be worth like 16 billion or something insane today. But, you know, speaking of that though, it brings to mind part of his, the way he earns trust. You know, if you read his partnership or his shareholder letters, you see that he leads with his failures, right? And he, he's very upfront about his mistakes by, you know, omission or commission. He says it's basically, this way of building trust by saying, look, I'm human. I'm going to make mistakes. I definitely shouldn't have done XYZ. But hey, to some degree, he's able to do that because they seem to do well every year and (laughs) it kind of offsets. It makes it a little bit easier. But you're right. I mean, one thing that I think is very similar to what's happening right now is he was very anti-tech You know, during the dot-com bubble in the 2000s or the 90s, sorry, leading up to the 2000s. He was getting laughed at. You know, he was basically getting laughed out of the room. Here he was buying railroads and things like that. He was not participating in getting the same kind of returns that all his, you know, other managers were getting. And but man, as soon as the dot-com bubble burst, value picked up and he outperformed and had the last laugh. And I think a lot of value investors are struggling with that same sentiment right now is just when is value going to pick back up? That's a really good point. If we were just to kind of dig into that a little deeper. I was always surprised that when he met Bill Gates, Bill Gates was running this little company out near me in Redmond, Washington called Microsoft. It was fairly big at the time, but it hadn't totally taken off. Even though he was really impressed with Bill Gates, he was impressed with the business in a lot of respects. He immediately read the 10K and he immediately, I think, bought a couple shares just uh be connected with Bill Gates and they became great partners and they liked to play bridge together and eventually joined the board at Berkshire. But what Warren Buffett didn't do is go big into Microsoft, which he had a lot of capital at the time to do. And he didn't do it. And I thought, boy, would he think that was a mistake? And what he always would come back to when he talked about that was that he felt like he didn't understand the technology well enough to know that maybe two or three years down the road, another technology company would come along and displace Microsoft. And because of that, it was outside of his circle of competence, which is another thing he talks about. He felt like he didn't have the conviction, didn't have the margin of safety, whatever it was to make that investment. But now you fast forward to today, and he went big into Apple. I don't know if it started with Ted or Todd, but eventually he's now placed a very big bet on Apple, which people see as a reversal from his earlier stance. And I see it as, again, evolving. He's talked about Apple as being more of a consumer company than a technology company and probably said, do I want to compete against Apple? What would it feel like to try to compete against Apple? Wouldn't feel good. And that maybe gave him the conviction to say, okay, 
there's something here. You could argue that at 90 years old, his bet on Apple is the greatest trade of all time, too. You know, so a lot of people are out there saying he's lost it. He's in his 90s. He's, you know, yeah, he continues to surprise. I think as predictable as he seems, he continues to lead in, in typically almost a contrarian way. Like, you know, when the market crashed early in March, I thought to myself, okay, this is when Warren Buffett, who at the time was sitting on 130 billion in cash, this is when he's going to clean up and ride off into the sunset, right? This is going to be his last magnum opus to sail off. And he really didn't, you know, and he's since come out with a few big plays, but and he got front run by the Federal Reserve a little bit as well. But it was just interesting, his contrarian approach. And he's sometimes doing what you least expect. I think his Apple investment at the time was completely surprising to everyone. His airline in recent years, his airline bet was a complete 180 from what he had been saying for years. And then most recently, and this is probably a Ted or Todd, but they just put money into a gold mining company, which, you know, you know, Buffett, that's a complete 180 again. So that's what I'm talking about when, you know, the facts change, his his mind changes. And even at 90 years old, to think you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I mean, this guy is continuing to innovate in his own style and outperform. That's a great quality. And it I chalk that up to an independent mind, you know, someone who believes in their own thinking. And not that you don't check yourself and check your thinking against reality and all that, but when you've got a conviction, you've got belief in your own independent thinking. And he says this is a key to being a good investor is you have to be able to think independently. And part of that came from lessons he learned from Benjamin Graham, who very much thought the same thing. And Benjamin Graham had a great line that Buffett often quotes. It says, you are neither right nor wrong because the crowd disagrees with you. That's something we can all learn from because we are so susceptible. Wall Street is so susceptible. Many investors are so susceptible to this lemming, this herd mentality. And if you want to outperform the market, if you want to find those inefficiencies, then you're going to have to stake some some investment that goes against the grain. He's a wonderful example of that. Not to mention that he lives in Omaha, Nebraska. I mean, another contrarian play, right? Like had this early career on Wall Street, up and rooted his whole family back to Omaha, away from the noise, away from all the excitement of Wall Street, and grew this really under the radar, this massive conglomerate for many years without even most people recognizing it. I just love that. He still lives in the same home he bought in 1958. Another thing I, from reading into him a little bit deeper was how frugal he really was. So Trey, one thing about his childhood that stands out is he liked to earn money. He was very good at earning money. He wasn't good at spending money. And that wasn't where his enjoyment was. It was all about the joy of building it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Exactly. That stood out to me when I was reading Carol Loomis's book, Tap Dancing to Work. Carol, who's very close with Warren, spent a lot of time with him, tells this story about walking down the street with him. He had to stop and make a phone call at a payphone. He pulled out a quarter, but the, the call only cost 10 cents. So he went to somewhere local and broke the quarter down to two dimes and a, and a nickel to go make his phone call. I mean, this is a guy who's worth millions of dollars could just easily put that quarter in the machine and make that phone call and instead went and broke, got change for his change. What a great story. And 
And I think part of what's going on there in his mind, and he, he shared this, is the way he thinks about compounding, right? So when he goes to spend, I don't know, $1,000, $10,000, or even $5, he doesn't see $5 today. He sees the compounding result of that money being compounded at what he knows he can invest it at 15, 16% in his record has shown that he can. It doesn't take that many years in the future at that compounding rate to have a small fortune in your hand. And so he sees the world through compounding. That's something I've tried to do more and something I've taken away from Buffett and tried to do more when I think about my own spending is to think about the dollar today, not as a dollar today, but what it will be in the future based on compounding. That's a great point. I mean, just with this last example, running the math, it's, you know, if he spends 10 cents, if he's able to get 20% returns, which is typically around his average over the next 30 years, that 10 cents could grow to 23, almost $24, right? So he's looking at that phone call like this is a $24 phone call, right? (laughs) It's not a 10 cent phone call. Yeah. And not many people in the world think about it as a $24 phone call. Most people think of it as a 10 cent phone call. And therefore, you drop the 25 cents in there, you forget about the 15 and move on. But that sets him apart. He doesn't think that way. You've got a show coming out called Intrinsic Value. Can you talk a little bit about intrinsic value, what it means to you and what you've learned from Buffett there? Absolutely. So that's really the main takeaway over everything else that I've learned from Warren Buffett was that when it comes to investing, what I found to be somewhat of the holy grail of investing in in his mind was being able to determine the what he calls intrinsic value of a company. If you read every book on Buffett, this comes up all the time and they continuously reference intrinsic value, intrinsic value. They really never tell you how to do it. I felt a little bit like Siddhartha in, in that book, like on the search for enlightenment, right? I was just sort of on this journey to figure out how do I calculate intrinsic value? And so you can pull up some interviews He's been a little transparent about his approach, which seems to be mostly a, a discount cash flow type of approach or um, IRR kind of approach. One thing I love about Buffett right, is he thinks of stocks as even a single share of the stock as the company as a whole. right? So he really looks at it like, hey, if I'm going to buy this share, it basically means I'm buying the entire company at whatever that market cap or the current value is. So I need to determine, would I buy this whole entire company at the current price? And one thing that you learn very quickly when you study up on Buffett and even Benjamin Graham is price is very different oftentimes from value. Warren likes to say that price is what you pay, the value is what you get. And I love that quote. But you know, the journey really starts to become, how do you determine that? Much like Siddhartha at the end of that book, you kind of realize that beauty is somewhat in the eye of the beholder, right? That enlightenment can have its own meaning for different people. In that exact same way, intrinsic value can have its different meaning for everyone. And so it is almost more art than it is science. Buffett likes to also say that if you're working on intrinsic value and you have to pull up an Excel sheet, you've gone too far. <laughs> you know, I somewhat disagree with that because we're not all equipped with his level of intelligence to do everything in our head But what he's getting at is he even has this tray on his desk in his office that's that's labeled as too hard. And when he's reading 10Ks of businesses and it's over his head, or if it's not within his circle of competence, it goes in the too hard pile, which is just so amazing. Again, you see the humility, you see the humor. 
from his character in, in even his day-to-day business in that way. So basically, what I've learned is there's about four different pillars or, or rules to investing the Warren Buffett way. The first one is finding out if the company has great management. There's a lot of ways to do this, but a lot of times it's a qualitative approach. You can glean some information from the ratios and the numbers, but there's a certain amount of qualitative data that needs to go into that. The second pillar is finding something that has a compounding effect that can also defer taxes. So Warren likes to buy companies that he could hold for 100 years, and he says forever. right? But the idea is that these wonderful companies are just compounding machines. They continue to gain market share. They don't typically take innovation to continue to grow. One example is Coca-Cola. Perhaps Seize Candy is another. And there's this huge advantage there because by deferring taxes, you're increasing your return every year. I mean, by the number of whatever your tax rate is, right? So it's a huge way to continue to compound. And when you talk about compounding, that's what Einstein called the eighth wonder of the world, right? Where you're earning interest on your interest. So that's why he's able to compound his portfolio at 20% on average over the last 50 years, which is just unbelievable. The third pillar is finding something that's very stable and understandable. So we go back to that circle of competence idea. It's pretty easy to intuitively know that people are going to continue to drink Coca-Cola every year, almost no matter what the macroeconomic environment looks like. So that's just a great example of a type of stock that Warren would be typically interested in because, again, very stable, free cash flow, very predictable, and easy to sort of calculate the type of return he could expect from that. So the last pillar is the price. And that's where the intrinsic value really comes in, right? Because this is a Benjamin Graham reference, but Warren uses it a lot where he talks about Mr. Market. This concept really blew my mind when I first read it. And he looked at the market as the salesman that comes to your door every day, knocks on your door and says, Hey, I'm going to sell you this stock at this price today. You can say yes or no. And it really empowers the investor looking at the stock market that way, knowing that you have this objective decision available to you. He also likes to say that the stock market is the only place where people run out of the store when things go on sale, right? So, I, which I, another quote I love. Because that's really what's happening. I and mean, if you see the stock market's down, but you know that there's a wonderful company there, that's raining gold, right? That's a huge opportunity for you. And you have to be prepared for those. So I found it to be this journey that I took on almost 10 years ago now that to truly discover intrinsic value, there is really no exact formula. And that's the frustrating part of it. There's no real Excel sheet that's going to give you, hey, this is what it's worth exactly to the penny. And Warren wouldn't even advise that. I think it's a great place to start learning about free cash flows, learning how predictable they are, understanding what type of return you're looking for, what the price point needs to be in order for you to get that return, and then making some qualitative assumptions around the management and the other factors at play. That's what I ended up loving about it. So if you'll indulge me, I have this theory. I came from a music background where I did a lot of recording and songwriting and composition. And it's interesting. I've always felt being a musician that finance was out of reach for me and is for a lot of people. But what I kind of started to understand, especially when I started studying intrinsic value, was that it's really almost anything is just a distilling of information. So when I go into a recording studio to record a song, 
every lyrical word, every chord, every really sonic tone is available to me. But it's the skill or the process of distilling all that information down to a select few items that creates something great. And similarly, Warren Buffett's approach, you have this universe of stocks, thousands of stocks available to you. And it's about distilling them down into a small portfolio that's going to outperform. And the best way to do that is to kind of get your arms around how to determine what the intrinsic value is. And then hopefully, and this is the key, is buying the stock even at a discount to that intrinsic value. I mean, Buffett would ideally want to buy at a 50% discount to that intrinsic value. It's really hard to find something like that, especially in today's market, but it does happen. Wow, there's so much there to talk about. But just to address that last point about buying at a 50% discount to the intrinsic value, that's what Buffett calls the margin of safety. And that's a really important aspect of his philosophy too, which is when you do buy at 50% of what you believe the intrinsic value to be, you've got a little margin. The price could come down further and you'd still feel comfortable in that stock. And it very well could and most likely will go down further. And when it does, you have to have the conviction to believe in the investment, which gets back to doing your own work and analysis and having that independent mind, thinking and knowing through your own inner scorecard, believing in your investment. And you can only believe in it if you've done the work and you understand it. And that's why when you follow the herd on Wall Street or you get into investment because your brother-in-law mentioned it or everyone says, hey, you should invest in Tesla or whatever it is, and it starts tanking, you have nothing to stand on. But Buffett always has something to stand on. I want to make one other remark too about Mr. Market because I too was really blown away by this concept and it really changed my outlook on investing. And one thing I think about with Mr. Market is you mentioned this being the salesperson that knocks on your door. This salesperson is sometimes completely irrational. He can be a just a jolly fellow at times, but he can also be a crazy fellow. I think it's the way that Buffett puts it or Graham. Sometimes when things are going up, he's overly optimistic about how great the world's going to be. And he's only going to sell you this stock if you pay this huge premium. And you can just kind of slam the door in his face and it doesn't matter. He's still going to come back the next day. And that's something that Buffett loves about Mr. Market. And when he gets real depressed and sits around, oh, this is things couldn't get any worse. And if you have a different view of the world, that's when you strike and you can pick up something from Mr. Market. That's why Buffett, as he put it when you met him, he is the testament to the fact that those moments are there. It reminds me of another quote of Buffett where he says, be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. And that kind of goes into that psychology and and also the contrarian approach that not only him, but a lot of other value investors also take on. But to your point, I think you just... I don't want to undersell this idea of conviction because it is so important and oftentimes overlooked. There's a temptation after you read about Buffett and all these ways to determine intrinsic value, you can stumble upon things like stock screeners and all these things that are going to show you different things. I mean, Joel Greenblatt, another great, great value investor, used a formulaic quantitative approach, right? Where he just went by the numbers and he did really well. He outperformed for a number of years. 
I've tried that approach. And what I found was when you take on a portfolio and you don't really know what's in it, but they're all value picks and they're based on quantitative you know, ratios that, that look good, you have no conviction when things go against you. And it's the conviction and standing in that confidence over numbers of years that is what has separated Buffett from everybody else. Yeah. It gets back to that psychology, back to the temperament and those qualities that when we started this interview, we talked about on, in chapters 8 and 13 of The Intelligent Investor that don't change over time and that Buffett has been such a great example of and a teacher to many of us too. His ability to write about this and his willingness and his generosity to share his thinking and his approach with others has been a great testament to his character and, and a wonderful legacy for all of us. Another thing that Buffett is not often given credit for is just how amazing of an operator he is of his business. A lot of people look at him like the stock picker who's reading 10Ks, and that's a portion of it, what he does. But he actually grew this failing textile business. And this is just unbelievable, right? He basically went all in on this textile business that he thought was a cigar butt, that he thought he could turn around and basically sell off assets. And it almost ate him alive. And he was able to pivot and innovate and create a conglomerate now that's worth half a trillion dollars. One book I read recently, it's called Margin of Trust. And it talks about Buffett's style of management and his decentralized approach to running a massive conglomerate, massive operation. So he's got this office in Omaha. And mind you, his company is worth half a trillion dollars. There's about 20 people in the headquarters office you know, in, in Omaha. He owns this network of underlying companies. And all the managers very rarely bother Warren Buffett. He gives them so much autonomy. And it's almost like, I think, because of his method and his approach, he has so much respect. He has this effect where I think people don't want to let him down. He's able to pick these really great managers that are going to go... You know, They're already self-starters. They're usually already wealthy, and they usually love what they do. And they're going to go out and continue to execute. And I think that just he's built this culture at Berkshire Hathaway that is a huge competitive advantage. So as an operator of my own business, it's one of the things that I actually study quite a bit. That's a really great point. Not only did he make a lot of good decisions to grow Berkshire as an operator, but he did so in a way that did not end up taking over his day. He still has protected his day. So if you go into his office today, there's no computer. A lot of time of his day is spent just reading and thinking, and he wants to continue to do it that way. And I don't know of any other CEOs of large corporations that aren't running around doing press conferences, flying all over the country to their various offices, you know, doing the things that we think CEOs have to do, sitting in lots of meetings. He doesn't do that. He, as you said, hires good people, motivates them, inspires them in some way, and protects the time that he needs to do the things that he thinks is most important for a CEO, which is capital allocation. It's totally against the trend. Yeah, I've even seen him with his best friend, you know, Bill Gates, comparing their calendars, right? Like Bill Gates has every meeting scheduled, every minute of the day is scheduled in meetings or traveling. And Buffett has empty pages in his calendar. They like to show that off, but it's a huge differentiator. And it's also, again, speaks to his principles because here's his best friend who could have massive influence on him, who's also extremely wealthy. But that doesn't influence the way he 
manages his own business, right? He's again, it's that individual thinking at play. Absolutely. Well, this has been just a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you coming on The Good Life and sharing your stories of Buffett and your wisdom that you've picked up along the way. Where can people find out more about your show and what you're doing, Trey? Yeah. So I'm excited to announce our new show. It's on the Investors Podcast Network. So go to theinvestorspodcast.com. The episodes will be available on all the you know, normal streaming podcast platforms. But you can go to the website to check out more about the show. Great. Trey, thank you for being on The Good Life. Sean, I love what you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.